This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. How we doing? Today is November 16th. Welcome into the show. My name is Braden Dennis, as always, joined by the man, the myth, the legend, Simon Belanger. Today, we have an episode I know many of you will love because, hey, Canadians love those divvies. They love the dividends and for many cases, good reasons. And so you are going to unveil the portfolio that you built for jointci.com for those looking for income, maybe at the retirement stage, you know, this idea started from you building it something similar for your parents. Yeah, that's it. And I'll approach it each time. So I'll probably just, you know, each time I I provide an update, I'll try to do it quarterly. I know a lot of people have been asking for this. And the way I'm going to just approach it is as if I was retiring myself kind of right now. So not looking at five years in the future, just really right now and every quarter, I'll just, you know, probably change a few names just depending on how some of the names have fared. And the goal here is to achieve as close as possible to 4% dividend just because going a bit on the 4% withdrawal rule when you retire, but I am kind of incorporating some flexibility in there and I'll go into a bit more detail towards the end, but that's the, the main goal. But obviously as the markets move, when I update it every quarter, there might be some names that go in and out, but I think you know there probably will be some names that stay there more often than not. Yeah, I think that's a good call. It's kind of a set it and forget it with the old blue chips, baby. But these are high yielding blue chips and it looks like you've equally weighted them. Yeah. Looking here. Before we do that, I just thought I saw something interesting on the old internets before we get into the model portfolio. And it is focus investors five golden rules. And the source here is the Warren Buffett portfolio, Mastering the Power of Focus Investment Strategy. I guess this is some book. I have not read it, but these are the five golden rules from the book. Number one, and I, th- I thought these were interesting because not only are they timely and it forces us to zoom out, right? Like there's so much short-term pessimism that happens in the stock market on a regular basis. So this is an important zoom out and I am enticed to read the, the full book. Number one, concentrate your investments in outstanding companies run by strong management. Seems pretty self-explanatory. Number two, limit yourself to the number of companies you can truly understand. 10 is a good number. More than 20 is asking for trouble. You and I agree with this. I mean, the number, I mean, you can debate it all day, but you got to focus on a number of companies that you have the bandwidth to understand. If that's only five, if that's only 10, then maybe you do that and then just own a broad-based index with the rest of your portfolio. That's probably what most 
people should do if they have limited bandwidth to understand the number of companies. You aligned on this? Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad you kind of clarified, you know, if you want to just own five, but then complement it with a, you know, portfolio of broad-based index funds, I think that's great. I kind of do that myself just because I probably, I definitely have more than, than five individual holdings, but I do like to complement it because having just five holdings and nothing else, that's like extremely concentrated. So just so people kind of understand the nuance there too. And I haven't done it, but I've been talking about it and I want to do it. And you kind of gave me this idea. Whereas in falling bear markets, you know, when we saw what the NASDAQ finish or S&P like lowest point peak to trough was like down like 27% or something. That's just a, if I don't have any amazing screaming ideas popping out at me and I want to deploy money in the market, it's like, just buy an index fund, you know, buy this ETF for zero cost yeah. and then either deploy it to some individual name I have a lot of conviction in or just keep DCAing into it. I think that that is a easy way to take the emotion out of buying stocks on sale. And so I agree with that. Number three, pick the very best of your good companies and put the bulk of your investment there. This is basically just saying like, match your conviction and the waiting, right? Like if you have a name that you want to keep adding to it, just keep doing. You're not arbitrarily constrained like a lot of fund managers are. I think that that's where the like really long-term performance can come from. Number four, think long-term, five to 10 years minimum. Also pretty self-explanatory and I wholeheartedly agree. Five to 10 years minimum when you're thinking of buying a stock. The old Buffett says he wouldn't own a stock for 10 minutes that he wouldn't own for 10 years. That's a good mental model. Whether or not that you actually execute on that, that's a good mental model. And number five, this is just four words. I love it. Volatility happens, carry on. Volatility happens, carry on. That's the fifth one. I love it. Few words and powerful outcomes and powerful mental models here. Yeah. I feel like five could almost be like volatility is uncomfortable. Get comfortable with that. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Whatever it is, right? It's the, the notion of it happens. It's going to happen. It's happening now. It's going to happen again in the future. It will always happen. So get used to it and carry on. Yeah. No, exactly. So I guess now we'll move on to the portfolio. Yeah, let's let's talk about yeah, this. Yeah, drum roll. <laughs> yeah. Do we want to go through each name and I comment on it or are we going to be here all day if we do that? What do you think? Yeah, so I, I think I'll basically start, give all the names and then we can just comment on. I just put a couple points for each because obviously, you know, it's going to take a whole day like you just said if we do that. So I'll just kind of... Some I'll have no thoughts on, some I'll have lots of thoughts yeah. on. So we'll just roll with that. So I'll just kind of go through the goals here quickly. So dividend retirement income portfolio, like I mentioned early on to provide most of the income from the dividends, get as close to 4% average yield as possible, stocks that have a sustainable- Can I stop you there? Why 4%? Other than the 4% rule, Mm -hmm. which maybe you can reiterate again now, but why 4% just in general? Why why does that number feel right to you? And 
it's a number that's used a lot for yeah. like a goal for income. Yeah, and so there are a couple of reasons. The first one, which has some limitations, is a four percent rule, meaning that you can essentially, you know, when you're retired, withdraw four percent of your portfolio and be able to sustain yourself at retirement. However, I do like a, I read a kind of, not paper, but an article quite lengthy on Vanguard, and I can try to, to search it and find it. I can always post it on Twitter, where they looked at a more of a hybrid approach, right? So you kind of withdraw anywhere between 2, 2.5%, 2, 5 6% of your portfolio, depending on your needs, on the cost for a given year, maybe a year you go for, you take a big trip, the next year you don't, and so on. So having some more flexibility, and they found that that was something that could be sustainable. So not having kind of a hard set 4% rule, but having more of a, a bracket. And that's kind of the approach I went. So that's the 4% kind of sits in that middle here. So that's the logic behind it. Gotcha. And it's also, to me, a kind of line in the sand where you can find lots of 4% safe yields. So look at the banks, right? I yeah. mean, historically, they've maintained that 4% dividend yield. Beyond that, you get into value trap alarm bells, start saying potential dividend safety alarm bells. Of course, nuance case by case. But generally, once you go into the 5 plus 6%, it's either a very unloved sector paying that yield or it's like, you know, just a pure play income play with maybe no capital appreciation. So that's why kind of 4% is also important as well. It's a bit of a delineation between respectable high yielders and potential value traps. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So like you alluded to, the stocks have to have a sustainable dividend. And that's really important if you're counting on that for income. Now, dividends that have grown, I was trying to get also some companies that had, you know, try to get that 4% average yield plus a dividend that has shown some growth in the past five years. doesn't have to be huge growth. And I know you'll talk about some names afterwards that offer a smaller dividend, but more growth. But the case here was to have a pretty good base dividend and some growth next to it. And obviously, I wanted to have some revenue growth as well, because if the company's not growing, chances are that you know the dividend may be in jeopardy at some point in the future. And with the dividend being sustainable, having a cash flow payout ratio that is sustainable. For the most part, I would use free cash flow, but FFO funds from operation is the most useful metric when looking at REITs or utility type businesses. I did not have the chance to look at every single business for the payout ratio. So obviously this is just, you know, an example of a portfolio. So if you like these names, I would say one of the things you need to do if you're using it as a dividend play is definitely make sure that payout ratio is sustainable and they have a history of a sustainable payout ratio too. Yeah. I mean, this is a major point of contention if you're looking at high yielders. It's just how much of their free cash flow or you know what you can readily find available on payout ratio will use net income. So ideally use free cash flow, but if not, you're just checking the payout ratio on most financial data sites, you'll see it in net income. And this just gives you an idea of how much of profits are being dished out to pay the dividend. And the higher the number that is, is just a higher percentage of profits going to pay out the dividend. So if the number is lower, it's typically safer. Yeah. 
and they have room to keep growing it. That's that's basically the gist of it. Yeah. And it'll vary from, you know, industry to industry. So don't start looking at Apple probably has, I don't know, I don't know by heart, but around what, like 20%, 15% payout ratio and compare it to, let's just say a granite real estate investment trust. Like it's obviously granite is going to have a way higher payout ratio. A big chunk of your returns with granite will be that. Whereas Apple, it's just going to be a little boost to your returns. That's about it. REITs are required to be a REIT structure exactly. to pay out over 90% of <laughs> distributable earnings, right? So. Yeah. So yeah, if you see a utility paying out, you know, like I'm pretty sure the telcos pay at like 80%. Yeah, they're uh, they're way up Roughly. There. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, these are very stable oligopolies with recurring cash flows. So that's not like some high flying tech stock that pays some wonky dividend. Yeah. Those are not the same. So I'll say now all the names in order. Like you said, they're all equally weighted except one. I'll say the yield. Obviously, the markets have been moving a lot. So, you know, we talked about volatility. So that's been the case. And then we'll I'll just go over each name, just a few points here to try to keep this not too long because we have another segment after this. So the first two names are Brookfield Renewable Partners and Brookfield Infrastructure Partners, 5% weighting each. Dividend yield for the renewable partners is 4.11% and infrastructure partners is 3.28. And I actually use the corporation one. So you can get a higher yield if you use the limited partnerships. The reason I took the corporation here is just because it's friendlier to some types of accounts that are not like TFSA and RSP. Digital Realty Trust, ticker DLR, again, 5%. This one, 4.3% dividend yield. And I'll just say they're all 5% except one. So I'll just say the weighting. I'll stop saying it here. Granite REIT, like I mentioned, GRT-UN, 3.96% dividend yield. Canadian National Railway, 1.81% dividend yield. Canadian National Resources, 4.14% dividend. Texas Instrument, 2.76% 2.76% dividend, and I'm skipping some tickers here. I'll put them in the show notes, so not to worry. Realty income, 4.58%. Home Depot, 2.4%. Royal Bank, 3.89%. TELUS, 4.84%. J&J or Johnson & Johnson, 2.67%. Pepsi, 2.58%. TD, 403 Fortis 4.23%. And then I have some non-stocks because yields are so high right now because of higher interest rates. I think it's just a great opportunity for retirees to be able to have that and actually, you know, be fairly close to inflation. So I have 10%. This is where it's not equally weighted in the purpose US cash fund yielding 4.04% in interest rates. These are essentially money market fund. So essentially it pays like a, and it's almost like a savings account if you'd like. And then I have 5% each in a one-year GIC, two-year GIC, and three-year GIC. They're yielding all above 5% right now with our sponsor EQ Bank. But, you know, it's pretty typical now. They're typically at the top in terms of GICs. I mean, if they're not the top rate, they're usually, you know, first or second, and then, you know, they go back to the top. I love this one-year GIC at 5.1%. I mean, I didn't... If you told me I would say those words on this podcast last year, I would have told you, you are full of shite. And here we go. What a difference change in rates can make. No, I like this. I I like this overall. I mean, it's it's obviously balanced. You have 
15, 20, you have 25% of the portfolio and essentially cash or fixed income. And so that's one thing to speak of. And then, yeah, you got, you know, the rails, Canadian bank, consumer staples, infrastructure plays, utility. Let me look here. Yeah, like something as stable as a retail play like Home Depot, which I don't care about their financials. Have you walked in there and just smelled <laughs> Home Depot? <laughs> just yeah. No, I think this is good, man. This is this is solid. And I tried to, and I think you can tell, I tried to diversify as much as I could. Obviously, if I wanted to be overweight, like certain sectors, like you know, banks, for example, utilities would be another example here, and REITs. If I did like banks, REITs, utilities, I'd probably be closer to five, five and a half percent in terms of average yield. So keep that in mind. But I, you know, I have some tech plays here as well. I do have, like you said, some consumer discretionary and so on and non-discretionary. So I think it's a pretty good balance. And that was one of the things I wanted to do. And even with this, it's important to recognize like this yield is like, you know, averaging out at 3.84% on the portfolio which is obviously a nice income on any portfolio for these these high quality names but no equity is safe from the volatility and potential capital loss like look what happened with Algonquin Power yeah, yeah you know exactly. a safe high yielder utility that has poorly managed capital I'd say and you know so none of these names are safe from large equity drawdowns on the market and none of them are safe from you know the laws of capitalism. So it's just important to remember that some of these blue chips are not safe havens, but of course they're going to have less volatility than the market and overall less business risk than the average company on the market. That's the whole point of the yeah. of the old blue chip. Yeah, exactly. Now I'll go a few points every name and I will talk about again the cash and the GICs, the reasoning behind those. So BIP, BP, the reason I chose this over BAM is really simple. It's because they're yielding higher starting yield. It's very possible over the long term that BAM will outperform these two very well, you know, aware of that, but that's not the goal here. They consistently, they have a dividend policy to increase it between 5 and 9% every year. Now, just a little like footnote here. If you look at their five-year dividend growth, can be misleading. It's because they've had some stock splits. So it looks like extremely low. That's because they don't factor in the stock splits in the calculation. So it looks almost flat. It has not been flat if you factor in for those. They're great at deploying capital. They could see some slower growth though in the coming years because of higher interest rates. And that's that's a risk just to be aware here. Now the next one, DLR, so Digital Realty Trust, one of the largest players in the data read center. My preferred play here is Equinix, but again, the goal here is to get as close to 4% as I could and DLR as a much higher yield than its bigger brother Equinix, I would say. They could see some headwinds from supply chain issues related to semiconductors and as well interest rates. But overall, I mean, I'm not too concerned that, you know, the dividend would be in jeopardy and it will most likely keep growing. They have a pretty strong history as well at growing the dividend. It's funny because after this, I'm going to give a quick list of some Canadian and US names that I think are more dividend growth names, like you get more capital appreciation. And in the first list, I'd prefer to own BAM for that reason. And in the second one here, I'd prefer to own Equinix for the reasons that you've listened here as well. 
that's not the reason I'm saying this is not because, oh, I think that they're so much better is that I think that they serve different purposes in terms of what game you're playing. And I am not entering retirement. So it's a different game, right? Like yeah. that's the whole point of this portfolio. Exactly. Now, the next one is a REIT, the first REIT on the list. So Granite REIT, one that I own personally, conservative FFO payout ratio for REIT. So it's the, in the mid 70s, low mid 70s, low leverage compared to a lot of its peers, high occupancy level. And one thing to be aware, and I'll try to add some downside as well as much as I can, because it's all, you know, not all positives for all these names but they have more than 20% of revenues dependent on Magna International. Something to keep in mind, you know, if something happens to Magna, it could really impact their revenues here. They have been, you know, narrowing that more and more. It's becoming less and less in terms of percentage over the years. It used to be the vast majority of revenues a decade ago, like overwhelmingly the vast majority. So that's still trending the right direction, but I do like this play and offers a pretty good yield. It's been pretty beaten down in the past couple of months. Offering a chance to own another high-quality industrial read again here. I mean, of course, all of these names have been hit pretty heavily from rising rates, like you know most reads do. But this one's a high-quality one, good, well-managed one, big spinoff from Magna quite a while ago now. You've seen the kind of divesture from their concentration risk in Magna. And I think that industrial REITs are typically good businesses overall. Yeah. No, totally agree. Now, the next one, I wanted to put one of the railways in here. I always come back to Canadian National Rail here just because it has a higher yield than CP. It's one of two railways in Canada, has a strong network. It ranges from east to west in Canada all the way to the Gulf of Mexico in the U.S., one of the reasons why they had no shots at buying Kansas City Southern is because their network was already so extensive. They're dependent on the strength of commodities and the economy, so something to keep in mind. So if you see a drop in that, could definitely impact their revenues. It will grow slower than CP, especially if you factor in the Kansas City Southern acquisition, but new leadership since the start of this year will be returning more capital to shareholders. So thankfully, that Kansas City Southern acquisition did not go through. So that's why it's a really interesting play because I can just see, even though the starting dividend is lower here compared to other names, I think they'll be growing it double digits for the foreseeable future. So it could go pretty quickly here. It's infrastructure that's been in the ground for 100 and going to be in the ground for another 100. So not much else to comment here. Yeah, the next one is Texas Instruments. I know one of uh, one of my follows on Twitter, the dividend guy, a fellow French Canadian. Sorry, I, I'm missing his name here, but I'm sure he'll tweet at me after he listens to this. But he's been big on Texas Instrument. And the more I look into it, the more I think it's a really interesting dividend play. So it has a fairly high dividend for a tech company but not you know high to the point that you would look at it and say oh boy is there some big issues going on with this company it is a more mature company but 19 consecutive years of raising their dividend and it's the largest producer of analog semiconductor chips in the world so these are kind of real world uses they're not chips that would go in like computer systems so they're different and there are competitors but they have steadily grown their percentage of that over the years. So definitely a very interesting play to have some tech exposure here. I like it. Great business. Absolutely wonderful business. And I didn't realize they had 
raised the dividend 19 times. And you just mentioned, shut up, Mike. Mike, I know he's listening to the pod. (laughs) And I had the pleasure of meeting him. He's a great guy. Great energy. Awesome energy. I like the way he rolls. Shut up, Mike. Yeah. I should know his name. He's also French. <laughs> it's well, true. I'm sure I all hear about it, but that's okay. So the next one here. It's not like, you know, like, oh, because he's French Canadian, no, no, you're French Canadian. You guys just like have to know each other. <laughs> like, no. hey, everyone in Quebec knows each other by first name, of yeah. course, right? And I'm like notoriously terrible at names. Like I'm so bad with names too. I recognize people's faces. Like I have really good ability to do that, but names, I'm terrible. Now, the next one here, Realty Income. This is a really interesting Retail REIT. The reason why I like it is their top tenants are grocers, convenience stores, and dollar stores. They're very big in the US. They have triple net leases. Triple net leases essentially means that the tenant pays for pretty much everything, whether it's the maintenance of the building itself, if they need to do certain modifications, taxes, things like that. That's what a triple net lease is. So it's a very good business model. They grew their dividend at a 4.4% compound annual growth rate since 1994. So it's not going to go blow you out of the water, but I think it's going to provide a steady dividend. And it's yielding pretty nicely here. I'm just going on the information I had. So 4.58%, a pretty good one. Now, the next one, you talked about it, Home Depot. I don't think I need to go too much in detail here. I mean, it's a leader in home renovation, construction material, provides exposure to the construction market. It's more stable than publicly listed US home builders. It could face some headwinds if there's a significant slowdown in construction, nonetheless. So keep that in mind because the pro side is a pretty big portion of their revenues. But I mean, even if there's a big slowdown there, I think it will, you know, be able to weather the storm quite well. And it would need to have something pretty catastrophic for them to cut their dividend. There's a book that I want to read that is... I think recently come out that describes the life and the story of the founding of Home Depot with the founder written closely with the author. And it sounds badass. It just sounds like a very unconventional and badass story because I'm pretty sure he started it in his 50s or something. Hold on. Let me let me, let me me verify that <laughs> okay. while you go on to the next one. Yeah. So the next two, I put them together, Royal Bank and TD. So this, in my view, I'm not super big on banks and I know them decently well, but these I think are two of the better Canadian banks, obviously part of the big six. They're actually the, the two largest. Royal Bank for me gets revenues from several segments. So it's not as reliant on retail banking as other banks. And although TD is primarily a retail bank, bank it has significant part of its revenues coming from the US which makes it less reliant on Canada than other Canadian banks so that's the reason the reasoning behind I went with these two over some of the other names in this space do you find what you were looking for <laughs> I'm still still looking okay. <laughs> I was hoping you keep talking oh, yeah, I saw the thumbs up it. as I was about to say that but yeah. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> yeah. Bernie Marcus and Arthur Blank founded the company. Hold on while I figure out and verify how old Bernie okay. Marcus was when he started it. Okay. I'll, I'll keep going. The next name here is Telus. So I chose Telus over Bell because mainly Telus does not have a legacy business like BCE. Rogers was not even part of my thought process because they seem to, you know, step in 
you know, I'll just say it in poo whenever they have the chance. It's like, you know, <laughs> no, but it's true. Like if there's a playbook on making mistakes as a telecom, I think, you know, Rogers would need to write it. That's how bad I think it is for them. Now, tell us what I like about them is they don't have, like I said, the legacy business like Bell does, but also they provide some exposure to the healthcare space and this is something their competitors don't. So it gives me a little bit of exposure to that within these names, along with my next name here, Johnson and Johnson. No, that's good. I, I think TELUS has been a good capital allocator of the big three telcos. I think probably the best. And I don't have any real hot takes on any of them other than lots of hot takes on Rogers yeah. now that I say yeah. about it. But Rogers and TELUS, I don't have any really spicy takes between them. All right, here it is. He founded the business. This is Bernard Marcus, founded Home Depot. He co-founded it at age 50 and retired as chairman in 2002. So these businesses that you find that are like founded, you know, at the tail end of someone's career, it's an awesome story and motivating for people who are like not entrepreneurs, but want to be and think, you know, oh, you know, I got kids. It's, it's later in life. You know, I can't to start a company and look, Home Depot was started by a 50 year old. And, you know, what is it like 90% of Warren Buffett's wealth came after the age of 65? Like, you know, it's not too late. This is just my motivation yeah. from. <laughs> From me, an entrepreneur to potential entrepreneur in the future. Take it from me. I made most of my mistakes in my 20s. So now in my 30s, I feel like I'm doing better moves. <laughs> That's uh, obviously I'm not 50. But You're a wise father now. I'm wisening up. Yeah, exactly. So the next name here, I alluded <laughs> to it. So Johnson & Johnson, obviously the ticker J&J, something that you'll probably hear a lot whenever someone's talking about them. They provide some exposure to the healthcare space, so don't have any other exposure aside from TELUS here. Note that J&J &J will be spinning off its consumer business, which will be called Kenview. I'm not sure exactly when. I know it's coming soon. And Johnson & Johnson will be focusing on its pharmaceutical business. So if you own this name, you'll own both company, I'm assuming. I haven't looked into the, the whole spinoff, but I'm just assuming if you own shares, you'll keep owning J&J &J and you'll get shares of that Kenview company. This is maybe blue chip of... Yeah. <laughs> this is the big dollar of blue chips. This Pretty is the much. king of blue chips. Pretty much in every index fund you can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You Google blue chip and the J&J &J logo comes up. Yeah, pretty much. Without its issues, right? There's been some lawsuits in the past couple of years. I think about like the baby powder amongst other things and stuff like that. But, you know, I think overall it should have a pretty sustainable dividend. Classic new dad. Yeah. Just into, into finding uh, all the, it all the lawsuits on baby powder. Bit, even before I knew <laughs> it was going to become a dad. But I digress next here. A utility. <laughs> I know people will like this one. I know it's a very popular play in Canada. So Fortis, this one, I would have to do a bit more research. But what I've read, the limited reading I did is it seems to be one of the safest and better managed utilities available in Canada it seems to be very conservative in terms of, you know, making sure they're prepared for the worst type of deal. It has raised its dividend 49 consecutive years, which is really impressive. Holy smokes. Yeah, it's really impressive. I mean, in the US, that would be considered a dividend king once it reached king, 50. Yeah. So they're pretty close to that. I think they have to be in this S&P 500. But regardless, it's impressive, especially since it spans over some periods of economic uncertainty. 
and of course the great financial crisis so the fact that they were able to raise it i don't know by how much maybe they just didn't uh, kind of a token you know a courtesy raise but they still raised it and they never cut it which is impressive and they have a target of four to six percent dividend growth per year from now until 2027 which is pretty good considering they they pay above four percent already yeah so like a dividend aristocrat is 25 years so yeah they're one year out i mean despite are they they'd probably be in the s&p file i don't know listed, yeah right? I think they're they're not uh, anyways, whatever whatever splitting hairs, but yeah, yeah it's fifty years of a dividend increase puts it in an elite class yeah. of like less than fifty businesses. I'd probably yeah. Guess. yeah. There's already not that many as dividend aristocrats, so dividend king yeah is quite something. So I think this one, you know, I think you're saved that apparently there's forty one stocks that are dividend kings as of today. So, you know, puts it in a very elite group. You get like a lot of the consumer staples. It's like, you know, you go to your buddy, you're like, I need a blue chip. And he's like, say no more fam and gives you shares of Procter and Gamble yeah. and Johnson and Johnson. So <laughs> no, talking about a pretty exclusive list here. That's it. And now the last of the stocks here is Pepsi. So I prefer this one over Coca-Cola because Lay's has been a big driver in sales for them. And they've really shown a resiliency like Coca-Cola and other consumer staples where in the face of inflation, they've been able to keep their margins pretty intact and raise prices so it's something very attractive here the payout ratio i think i had looked at it i think it's around like 80 percent but a company like pepsi is not something that i'd be really alarmed about could be a bit lower or higher just going on memory here when i checked but i think it's a good play i don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon and provides a decent starting dividend too i think in the mid two percent Dude, Frito-Lay is a sneaky, great asset. Yeah, it is. Very sneaky, great asset. People love chips and that ain't changing anytime soon. Frito-Lay is a great asset. And if you look at the segment breakdown on on Pepsi, Frito-Lay is like a growth stock, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's doing. It's been a great, great addition to their portfolio. And I think that's probably the reason you'd own them over Coca-Cola if you prefer Pepsi. Yeah. Yeah. I don't prefer the drink, but I think I might prefer the stock because of Frito-Lay. I'm agnostic. I really don't care. It tastes all the same to me. <laughs> I put it with rum, so it tastes all the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah. T- tastes the same once it's about 80% yeah, rum. That's it. <laughs> and now the last <laughs> two here, they're not stocks obviously so the purpose u.s cash fund this is essentially a savings account in u.s dollars the reason why i picked this is because you can also have it in canadian dollars if you wanted but i like the usd they both yield in terms of interest rate around four percent and it gives you exposure a bit outside of canada so not having that currency exposures the u.s is a reserve currency so that's why i like having this 10 percent here and it's really useful because of what i we were talking earlier that kind of 2.5 to 6 6.5 percent range where you may need funds to just sustain your expenses from a year to year basis well this is meant for that so this gives you that buffer it's super liquid it's not locked in you can just sell it very quickly and get the money i mean you sell it you withdraw your money you get it within a day or two depending how long your broker takes to transfer to your bank account so this has 
a lot of flexibility and with 4%, I think you'd be, you know, it's kind of reckless to not have something like that in your portfolio, given the interest rates we're seeing. And then on the other hand, the GIC, so all three of them are 15% together. They're offering, I think it's 5.05. I checked this morning, they lowered it a little bit at EQ Bank, but they're all offering over 5%. And the reason why I did one year, two year, three year is just to stagger them. And Every year, one matures, and you can decide at that point whether you want to reinvest that money in a GIC and keep on staggering or potentially using the money if you need that additional cash infusion. The staggered way, it's great because they're locked in, so every year you get that extra 5% unlocking, and then you can just decide when it unlocks what the best course of action is for your portfolio at that point. I feel like I'm the guy at the end of... When you watch some pharmaceutical company and they list out like 37 side effects, rates are subject to change here. Yeah. Our sponsor yeah. at EQ Bank's going to kill us if we don't say no, no, that. They are subject to these, change. G- these GICs are subject to change. But today, a point in time, yeah, like, you know, yeah. over 5% on these GACs. Uh, that's pretty solid. We're not just saying that because they're a sponsor. It's a good option, man. Yeah. Like I said, didn't think I would be saying that. If I heard myself say that on the podcast a year ago, I would have I thought I was literally on some serious drugs. So this is good, man. One more disclaimer is that none of this financial advice. Do your own research with every single name listed here before you enter a security. Don't follow anyone. Don't follow us into trades without understanding the business and that understand that there is volatility on every single stock. So just be aware of that. Well said. This is good, man. I like this. I like the idea of a 4% yield for or just under, you know, 3.8%. It feels nice, feels right for an income portfolio. And look, these are not crummy businesses. I like some of them a lot more than others, but some of them are really nice businesses. Yeah, no, exactly. And I'll post it on joint TCIs so the members there. Obviously, we've said all along we won't be doing a paywall, so we talk about it on the podcast. But I'll have a bit more detail, some point forms, and the compound annual growth rate that the companies have seen in terms of dividend growth, because I think that's pretty pretty useful as well. Would have made a pretty long episode if I went through everything. On stratosphere.io, we're building a th- like the chart to have a toggle where you can do total return as well to include all nice. dividends over yeah. time, yeah. which is just really damn hard to find. So it's kind of complicated to build out. So we're going to have that on November 29th, baby. All right. I'm going to just do my like quick runners up for like a dividend growth ideas because you know, some people are looking for income. Some people are looking for a bit of both and more total capital appreciation. So just to kind of you know weigh this discussion, I have five US names, five Canadian names. We're not going to go through them. I don't have time, but here's some ideas. Every single name I will list here, both on the US and Canadian side, have achieved over 10% dividend growth on average over the past five years. And they're what I think is very high quality, especially on these US names. Here you go. Costco, ticker cost. Microsoft, ticker MSFT. Visa, ticker V. Equinix, ticker EQIX. And ASML, ticker 
ASML. On the Canadian side, we have TFI International, ticker TFII, and then I have CP Rail instead of CN here, GFL, ticker GFL, Brookfield Asset Management, ticker BAM. On the Canadian side, it's ticker BAM slash A or dash A. And then Alimentation Couchetard, please say that one for me. Alimentation Couchetard. Oh, I love it. it. Just rings so nice. <laughs> Thank you. That is ticker ATD.B, which has been a sneaky compounder and a sneaky dividend growth stock just strictly out of can't buy it on a US exchange too which is nice I like that because you're going to be less crowded into the name just naturally all right let's keep going with today's show wow we're talking about so many stocks yeah. today wow this is incredible let's do a favorite segment of the show called stocks on our watch list presented by our friends, EQBanks get lots of exposure yeah, today, yeah. and we are talking a lot, a lot of a lot of stocks. So, EQBank, the beautiful people over there, you're welcome. We love you, and you're welcome for this wonderful exposure for you. All right, do you want to go first? Yeah, I'm gonna stick to the dividend team here. So, I chose yeah, you a, really are. Yeah, I chose a name that <laughs> actually came to mind again. A shout this out, beaten up. Yeah, beaten up. Is it still beaten up? Oh yeah, it's I know still it's really it's beaten up. More beaten up. <laughs> Even more. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. Oh, this got beat up. I sold it and then it got taken to the woodshed. Thank goodness yeah. I sold yeah, it. No, but I do like it here now. I yeah, think. it's actually really interesting. So I got the inspiration from both Mike, who I had talked about before, but also our friends Dan and Nick at the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. So their latest episode yeah. about, I think it's understanding or breaking your mortgage. I probably butchering the title here. I'm sorry, guys, but they talk quickly about allied property REIT. And I'm like, you know what? I'll have a quick look here. And there's a lot of intriguing things. So it's a small company listed in Canada, market cap of $3.3 billion. It's currently yielding just shy of 7%. Now, 70% of allied assets are in office REITs, with 17% being in urban data centers, 9% in retail, and 4% in parking real estate. So primarily office REIT, but not only that, so a bit more exposure than that. Now, I'll just talk about this dividend, the 7%. So as soon as you see something that high, even for a REIT, this is starting to be on the higher end for a REIT. You know, it's not like a tech play where I see alarm bells going on left, right, and center. Yeah. But a REIT, it's on the higher side. So it's on my watch list, but I still need to do due diligence. But here's some of the stuff I found out. So now the reason why I find Allied intriguing is because we're still on the backdrop of COVID. Lots of people are still working from home in some fashion, whether it's fully remote or a hybrid model. 80% of its rental square footage is in Montreal and Toronto with the rest spread out between in order Calgary, Vancouver, Kitchener and Ottawa. The occupancy rate is, you know, it could be better. It's in the low 90s. It definitely could improve. I think clearly they've been impacted by the COVID trend here. But for example, I talked about Granite, which I own. Granite has an occupancy rate around 98%. So just to give a contrast here, they have 1 million square foot in development coming to their portfolio, the rental portfolio between now and 2025. And 78% of it has been pre-leased. Although I don't know to what extent, even if it's pre-leased, whether the lesser can actually get out of it. So I'm sure there's kind of ways for them to get out of that. I'm not an expert, but it's still good. 78% of it being pre-leased. And for context, their current portfolio is 15.5 million square foot. So 1 million is still a decent addition over the next several years. 
Their FFO, so funds from operation, is a bit down year over year, but has been stable on a sequential basis, which is definitely good news here. And the dividend does look safe, at least for now. They have a payout ratio from FFO of 71.1%, which is flat year over year. They've increased their dividend at essentially a 3% clip annually over the last five years. So they've increased it a little bit, not a lot. So the last thing I check here is the interest expense has stayed relatively stable. It's gone up a little bit if you exclude financing prepayment costs. So it has gone up a bit. But overall, I mean, it's a very intriguing play. I need to do more research here. But, you know, this is a play where you'd invest here if you believe that, you know, maybe longer term at some point we'll be returning more and more to the office. I don't think it's happening in the next couple of years. I think it will be gradual. I think it's something that's going to be gradual over time. I think the hybrid work model will be staying in place for a lot of businesses. But I also think a lot of businesses that maybe are fully remote will be transitioning to hybrid model. So I think there's going to be slowly some increased demand after being hard hit by COVID. This is a bet on Toronto. And oh my goodness, this thing's been crushed up they to have a, more leasable in montreal actually more yeah slightly more yeah just montreal and toronto are the by far the two biggest but montreal is actually a bit more than toronto really yeah yeah. i was surprised too because talking to you i thought toronto was their primary so if you next time you come to toronto and come hang out with me please come hang out with me just walk down king street like they own King Street, like every, and if you're in Toronto, my friends listening in Toronto, or next time you're down in Toronto, if you're walking on either Adelaide or King, the two downtown streets that run east-west, despite not Front Street, but the two north of those, you'll see a little placard. It's very hard to notice, but if you're looking for it, you'll see a placard right beside the door that, that'll have Allied's logo. It literally says Allied in all caps. And I didn't know that about Montreal. I probably should because I owned it for a hot second there. But I think that at this price, I mean, sh- these are good assets. Yeah. These are not junky assets. And I get its office and I get that there's some questions there. But one thing I would for sure want to understand the full story, this is, I guess, me to you, before you think about purchasing this thing try to dig and then please let me know what's happening and what the status update of the well development downtown is. It is a joint venture downtown, five towers, front and Spadina, I believe. It's five towers, joint venture with Rio Can and Allied. And this thing's going to be a beast. I think Shopify had like one of the entire towers before they decided to... Like there's just some question marks around tenancy there. Yeah. So I would... Oh, wow. Actually, I would look into that. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that. So when I was looking at their development pipeline, yeah. I stayed on that page for the investor presentation. And the well is actually expected between Q3 2022 and Q4 2023. So I think, yeah, it's almost done. Yeah. So I yeah. think they're probably starting to you know get it rentable. It's 98% pre-leased. So it looks I just like, think that people yeah. like I don't know what the like legally what people are able to drop out of, but I, yeah. I just know that the people who signed these big deals to be in the fancy new five tower development, the well downtown, was before people all get sent home from the office. Yeah. That was pre then. So 
I don't know the answers. I'm just saying, for no, anyone listening, yeah. this is a story to probably understand well. No, exactly. It's and probably going to be fine, too. Yeah, that's something. And I wrote it down as a note, so I still need to do some research on that. And it's more and more intriguing as a value play, I'll be honest. And so cheap If now. I like it, maybe it'll pop up in my next update of the dividend portfolio. <laughs> Jeez, because this was always a high-quality, growthy REIT that had a really low yield. Yeah, wasn't it like 2 to those, 3% in that It was range? 2 yeah. to 3 yeah. tops, yeah, and it didn't grow much, so like it didn't really serve any purpose in a dividend portfolio because it didn't really grow fast and it was a low yielder for REIT. So this kind of switches it on its head. All right, I will go here with my stocks on my watch list segment here which is Two quick names, but they're very different. And I'm actually putting my capital on the names that come up in this segment. Just staying true to the segment for the people of the pod. My most recent purchase was the most recent appearance of this segment, Intuitive Surgical. So I do own shares now. I feel I feel quite good about it. It's still very expensive, but it's come down a lot. All right, for me, two new ones here. And by new ones, I mean it hasn't come up on the segment in a while. And I love the idea of buying Brookfield Asset Management here. It's like real, real uh, creative here, Braden. But the asset management spinoff is going to unlock a bunch of short-term and long-term value, in my opinion. It's a company I sleep very well at night knowing I own it. And believe it or not, the reason it's in here is because I haven't bought shares in ages. Despite how much we talk about it, it's only about a 5.5% position for me, which shocked me. Like for some reason, I thought I had like double the position sizing in it. But I mean, that's why it's important to use a portfolio tracker like what we use in the template we give out on jointtci.com because I'm like, I could sleep really well at night given my conviction in Brookfield Asset Management and the mothership of the business to double this position. I can't. I had a small amount because, you know, dirt and ramen. But I like the idea of that position here today. On the other side of the spectrum... I was doing some digging in some really beat up, what I'll say, high quality software as a service SaaS companies that have really nice business models through tougher economic times and through the concept of net dollar retention. And Datadog achieves nearly 140% net dollar retention, meaning that the existing customer base spends more and more on the platform each year. Net of churn upgrades actually far, far surpass that so that if they didn't sign any new enterprise deals, the business is still going to grow handsomely. And so this is an important metric for software businesses and Datadog's at the top of its class here. Now, what does Datadog do? Okay. I even tweeted just before the show, I was like, yo, guys, WTF does Datadog do? Explain like I'm five. I'm asking for a friend here, please. And we got some really good analogies, but essentially it simplifies, say you have like a ton of data points, it'll create like a dashboard for you to like make actionable insights on monitoring across so many different endpoints. And and still like, what does that mean? I don't know yet. And I have no technical clue of how this business works, why people use it over their competitors. Not a single clue. I've been explained this like over 10 times in person from friends. So clearly I'm watching this and that's that's just strictly on my watch list. I'm not even close to being 1% enough knowledgeable to to be able to buy the stock here today. One of the responses here, it collects, contextualizes, and organizes company data to turn it into actionable insights. 
I'm like, bro, I, I need dumber. I need it dumber. I need, <laughs> I truly need explain like I'm five here. In all seriousness, the stock is, is down 50% and still trades at nosebleed multiples that I couldn't possibly justify given that I don't know enough about the business. But take a look, the growth, their financials, the net dollar retention, customer ads, there's clearly something here. And how much their customers talk about it, it's insane. For now, it's a bunch of buzzwords my peanut brain can't quite figure out. But there's clearly something here. And I don't know what it is yet. And that's why it's strictly just on this segment of the show today. Maybe in the future, it'll be in a I'll have a lot more context on it. Yeah, yeah. I didn't really know. I heard of the name, didn't really know what they do. I mean, I kind of have an idea just based on that. I mean, my workplace, I know that's a big issue where they'll have data, but they just, you know, they don't really know what to do with it. And I think that's a big problem with a lot of organization. It sounds like they essentially take that data and they're able to make sense of it and provide action, you know, insights and things that the companies can actually do to utilize the data they have. So how they do this, that I I would not be able to tell you. And (laughs) I think there's some network effects in the machine learning, though, which might be interesting. No, I mean, I'm assuming they're not the only ones doing this. Like, I feel like I've heard this before, but... Yeah, there's yeah. there's other... I'm sure there's many competitors for sure. But I mean... Yeah. And, and I'm not in a position to know why they would... Like, why are the metrics so exceptional? That's why it's ended up on my watch list. It's like the KPIs for the business and the financials and the income statement are like, holy, like something's clearly they, here. They must be doing something right. Yeah, with those numbers. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. And so I just want to pull a couple. I just checked Twitter. I got some funny responses here. So a lot of people were messing with me, but there's a lot of really good ones here as well. And someone said, it's like a robotic consultant. Instead of a person guessing on how you should strategically position your business, this robot will tell you with complete, like with conciseness. Someone trolled me and said Datadog is a pet company. (laughs) 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 So that's that's funny. Oh, someone said here, it collects information on canines. Hilarious stuff here. Good old Twitter. Other good ones here. It helps developers create dashboards. I think that that's also helpful. Gives you 10,000 foot view of the growing number of software applications built into your thing. And someone replied, you clearly don't know any (laughs) five-year-olds. (laughs) to that response because they're like dude he said to explain like he's five good stuff oh i love the internet people are funny that does it simon that's good Mm -hmm. good episode we just talked about so many good luck with the show notes that's a job i don't envy no i know it's yeah i mean i think it'll be Yeah, it'll be fairly quick. It's just I know most of the tickers by heart here, so shouldn't be too too hard to do. And then you know, create a little description that will get people excited. And don't forget, Texas Instruments TXN. is TXN. I remember it now. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, you're learning. Thanks for listening to the Canadian Investor Podcast. If you like today's show, share it with a friend or subscribe on your podcast player because there's more like this twice a week. This is our Monday release on Thursday releases. We talk news, what's going on in the fun world of financial markets, but in the context of long-term investing, real company fundamentals. Of course, we talk about the performance of these businesses over time and if, if it can affect the valuation, if we think it's interesting. 
But we are talking about real business fundamentals, helping you separate the noise from the signal. This model portfolio, you can find in a spreadsheet on jointci.com. Simone's going to courageously took the role of updating this every quarter. So we appreciate you. I appreciate you very much. We will see you in a few days. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.